Welcome to the Wait I Know You podcast, season one, episode three, the podcast about things you might know created by the people you might not. My name is Nick Rounds, and I will be your host. My next guest is a professor of philosophy in Florida by day and a booking agent slash club promoter by night. He's published books, given multiple lectures, and started his own drink and think night at dive bars. He's also formerly the lead singer of the death metal band Dark Faith, and somehow he still has time to be an awesome husband and a father. Dr. Peter <laughs> Owen, welcome to Wait, I Know You. How are you today? Good. How are you doing? <laughs> just all business. All business. Just, talk, just talking to me like a bank teller. You're like, how you doing, buddy? Sir, Where can I want? help you? Yeah. <laughs> Get out of my office. How are you, sir? Uh, so my podcast is called Wait, I Know You. It's a podcast of people about people that have done amazing things or really awesome, interesting things, but they might necessarily know the person. Uh, you're one of my favorite people that lives many lives and has accomplished many things, uh, most notably your time in the music, the Florida music scene and also in philosophy. Um, but I want to start on the music side first. And so uh, you're a club promoter now and a booking agent, um, but your music career started out in the Florida death metal scene. Um, can you talk about why Florida is such an important location for American death metal? Oh, wow. That's a huge question. Um, so start, uh, start with the light ones. Yeah, so uh, since the 1980s, no, I, was, <laughs> so actually, um, you know, it's just, it's not really everything started per se, right? I mean, you had bands like Sabotage and Nasty Savage, and then, uh, you know, the early death metal bands like Obituary and Death and Massacre and, you know, tons of people, and Cannibal Corpse moved down here, Deicide, you know, kicked off in Tampa. There was just a huge cluster of scene, uh, bands in the scene, and Morrisound Studios, where a bunch of people did records was down here. But it was just great. I mean, I, you know, I was from the East Coast, kind of in the you know middle of nowhere. And and we had a, a vibrant but small music scene in the 90s, you know, mid to late 90s. And um, but I was lucky enough to play Tampa like in 98, 99 at the tail end of this stuff. And um, a lot of these bands would still come out on the weekends, even when they weren't playing. So shows would just be packed. Uh, it was a really great thing to be a part of there at the end. But um, I don't really know if that the story is really that complicated. I think that there is just uh you know a gathering almost by happenstance of just these like great bands in florida in the 80s and 90s then you know the kind of history followed it you know the tampa scene the orlando scene even south florida now is different uh than it was say in like 93 uh but um yeah i mean there's just a laundry list of great bands so yeah um, would you i don't think there's that? anything particular about florida that helps <laughs> How would you say it's different uh, compared to 93 to now? Oh, I mean, I, it's the world is different, you know. So sure. the way music is made, the way people access music or, or kind of get interested in it is very different. So the way people come out to live shows, the way they get dedicated to stuff is, is just different everywhere. So it's not just Tampa or Orlando. It's, it's the whole world. Um, you know, concert turnouts are really good. There's still tons of people and bands that are passionate about uh, metal or, you know, other kinds of music as well. But, in, you know, in Tampa and Orlando, there's still these great scenes. Um, but it's just, you know, it's I think metal or like death metal in particular is, you know, for the lack of a better phrase, on the rise again. But it's just, you know, it's it's uh, initial um, boom period was just in that 90s. Right. So you just had a lot of people trying to do bands, trying to do records, coming out to concerts. I mean, it was just kind of a, a different world. And I think it, there's probably something about it that was new and exciting. And, and uh, you know, it's not that it's not new. and Well, it's not that it's not exciting now, but it's not exactly, I think, new. <laughs> right. um, but, you know, you do see that generational shift. Last night I had uh, two bands, a, a death metal show that, that was pretty much sold out in Orlando. Uh, one band, Frozen Soul, and another band whose name I'm going to horribly butcher, uh, named San... Sanguisugabog. I'm sure that's wrong, but um, both really great death metal bands, great bands that take uh, a lot of their influences from the '90s scene, not just Florida, but but you know a lot of bands like Bolt Thrower and Entombed, and uh, maybe a bit of Mortician, but a lot of the early Florida scene too, and Deicide and, and Cannibal Corpse and others. And it was just it, last night was just a great show because both of those bands, uh, as well as some of the openers like Body Box and uh, Vomit Forth and Inoculation, they just it's that early nineties sound again. So it's coming back. And I think there's an influence or an interest from a bunch of different scenes that are into this stuff, but it, it's, you know, there, there's just, I think very understandable reasons why this stuff is kind of different. Um, 
now. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, being the lead singer of a death metal band, um, you have to know and love that genre because it's it's not a genre for the faint of heart and or uh, the casual listener. Um, what bands really influenced you growing up and also what, what bands influenced your band, Dark Faith? Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, a lot of that, you know, we kind of cut our teeth on that, that classic Florida scene. So, I mean, I, getting into uh, Death was probably the first, one of the first death metal bands I got really into uh, in kind of the wrong order. So the early records, I, I actually went back and listened to, right? So when Symbolic came out, um, that was like a huge uh, experience for me. And um, Cynic, again, another Florida band, but the Focus record was a big deal. But also just hearing Cannibal Corpse and Deicide and Morbid Angel was just, you know, before that, when I was like 11 or 12, I'm listening to Metallica, I'm listening to like Black Flag or the Misfits or something. And then suddenly you hear someone like Slayer and then Cannibal Corpse and it's just this kind of mind blowing experience, which I think is, it's just such an awesome thing, right? Because, it, you know, in the same sense, uh, when I first heard Black Metal, I think it was um, Emperor's album, Anthems to the Welkin at Dusk. It was this it's just this, like this sublime moment where, where you lack, you know, it's part of it's being young and part of it's, you know, a, a new genre of music a little bit, but it's this sublime moment where you just lack the categories or the concepts to make sense of it. And it's such a great experience that I think a lot of people have in different ways. But I remember some of the guys in the band and I were listening to the Emperor record and it was just like, you just didn't have the vocabulary to describe what was going on. It was just it's like... <laughs> I mean, but it's, it's this great experience that, you know, as you get older, you know, as true with many things, I think you don't have those experiences. Um, but a lot of the early death metal, black metal is, is what I think was an influence for a lot of us. Carcass, Emperor, um, some more of the European bands, Amorphous uh, was, a, was a big deal to the point that we um, covered an Amorphous, Amorphous song on one of our later records. So, um, yeah, Dissection, I guess, was, was a big influence. So. It was good. I mean, everyone in the band kind of listened to different stuff and it was all over the place. So, you know, when we were younger and um, angrier, there was a lot of death metal and black metal, I guess. But then people got into like Les Claypool and Oingo Boingo and all kinds of stuff. And it's just you, you kind of as you stop being a teenager and narrow minded, you, you find, I think, a lot more interesting things. Uh, when, you stop, well. when you stop being angry at your dad, suddenly your music genre expands a little bit. But I mean, I, you know, it's always, I mean, to this day, I go back and I was listening to um, Death's uh, album, Individual Thought Patterns, two days ago. I mean, that, that classic era, I mean, that's not really what you would consider one of the classic records, but like that, that, that era of Florida death metal always kind of sticks. And even non-Florida, you know, bands from that era, you look at Bolt Thrower and Entombed and, and you know, bands like this, it's just... I don't know what it is. I think it's just the kind of music you're used to, but those records just never get old. I can, yeah. I can listen to, to any death record or cannibal corpse or deicide for, you know, it, it, it's always this experience where you listen like, like, so once every couple of years, cause I don't, I wouldn't say I play it regularly, but I'll go back and listen to that emperor record. And every time I have the same experience where I go, damn, why, why am I not listening to this all the time? This is amazing. <laughs> what, like, why do I keep, so of course you can't just listen to the same thing. I spent a lot of time trying to find new bands and and not get in that uh, you know for the lack of a better phrase like old man rut where you're like oh, I'm listening to the same records I was when I was 16. This is a great idea, but uh, well, yeah, that's, something about that you know, huh? That's that's the interesting thing about you being a club promoter and that every time I talk to you um, and and uh, every time I talk to you, you have a new genre of a uh, band that you're booking and it's not just straight up you're not you're not booking just metal you're booking um i guess what what are the some of the like genres that you're typically booking at your shows and also where are you booking well i, I do the whole state right so i mean i when i when booking shows i i do um you know everything from venues that hold 100 people to, to a couple thousand um and, and you know metal and, and punk are still my my main focus right i do a lot of death metal and, and some different genres of metal, but you know, I do everything from from hip hop to to pop music to YouTubers to country. I do paradoxically a lot of country recently. Um, so I'm I'm kind of just a general promoter. I really kind of look at things. And I, I was talking to an agent today about how like I love death metal. Like I you know I started off this conversation talking about how the show I had last night was just great. You know, sitting there watching Frozen Soul especially was just this, this great experience and. 
Um, and they killed it, you know. So I, I don't really get tired of the genre at all, which is, you know, I started listening to death metal when I was probably like 12 or 13, uh, and I'm 39 now. So it's a pretty good run, I think. But, um, but uh, you know, I, I'm booking every all this different kinds of stuff. We're doing uh, someone from RuPaul's Drag Race is doing a country show that we're doing uh, oh, awesome. next year, which is kind of exciting. And I'm working on a, a spoken word horror uh, event next year too. I, I don't know if it's going to happen, but but uh, it's something we're looking at. So, yeah, I you know I, I think the diversity of, of subgenres and interests um, is just it, it keeps it interesting, right? Because I, there's so many bands you love to work with, and there's so much kind of music that you love, but it's also you know you book a lot of the same bands for years and years and you develop these like great relationships uh so it's great to do but it's also you know one of the reasons i i like music or the music industry is that i can sit here and do what was it like a year i think i talked to you about this at one point but a year or two ago i was like yeah you know i don't know much about uh congolese rap you know like the rap that they do in uh, the congo so i i lost a day or two going down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out you know what kind of hip-hop they do in the the Congo, what's that's like and what history is behind that and all this kind of stuff. And it's just, you know, it's an endless passion or drive to kind of find this stuff. And it's great. So is there, are there any other genres of music that have really captivated you like that? Um, well, I mean, the last couple of years, because, you know, listening to, to, you know, whether you want to call it goth or dark wave or post-punk, like that genre, I've always kind of loved the eighties and nineties, like industrial scene. I mean, the kind of, you know, frontline assembly and skinny puppy and these kind of bands. Um, and then more recently with the revival of not really industrial, but in goth music with post-punk, like with bands like uh, boot blacks and actors and boy harsher and things like that. And then kind of working on a festival at that uh, with Mark paradise, who, who does this communion after dark podcast. Uh, I've really been exposed to a lot of that music just in the process of putting the festival together with Mark and, uh, just diving into the genre and I've really been impressed with the work people have been doing in that in that genre so it, that's been uh, pretty refreshing I think uh, for the last three or four years speaking of uh, 80s and 90s throwback um, you're friends with the saxophone well I wouldn't say friends but you're friendly with the saxophone player that appeared in the infamous Lost Boys movie uh, <laughs> can you tell me about that event specifically and why it's so awesome <laughs> Well, so Tim Capello is the saxophone player that was in The Lost Boys. And I did, um, pre-COVID, we had some shows and they got canceled because of COVID. And we ended up doing them recently and I helped him kind of do some stuff out of state uh, as well. And he lives in Florida, or they, him and his wife just moved down here. Um, but yeah, they were great. Uh, it was interesting. He, he has a really interesting show. Um, and he's, you know, I think he's in his late 60s and he's jacked, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> He can definitely uh, kick the shit out of me with one arm tied behind his back without breaking a sweat. Um, so, you know, that's scary. But uh, he is probably one of the, if not the nicest people I've ever met in the music industry. Just just absurdly nice and accessible to people. And they were really fun shows. And he's had a kind of brilliant career. And he's one of these people that's like what Bruce Campbell would call um, – well, Bruce Campbell calls it like a working actor, right? But like a blue collar musician where it's like, he's had this brilliant career. People know him from Lost Boys and he really embraces that, which is, I think, uh, you know, in a sense, admirable. But he also played with Tina Turner for a long time. He was on a couple of Peter Gabriel records. Uh, you know, he's just done a million things. So he's had this kind of brilliant career that people just don't talk about. And, but, you know, a lot of his shows that we did were really well attended and people were, you know, really, I mean, there are a lot of people that have really followed that guy's career and were just stoked to, to meet him and, and, you know, kind of come out and see him play. So yeah, it was great. Um, he, he, uh, he actually, at least post COVID is t touring a lot. So if you get a chance, he's completely worth checking out. <laughs> and I guess since we're on the topic of like really, uh, interesting shows that you're putting on, I think I'm just going to skip to the one I really want. I really want to talk to you about. And that's, uh, you are hosting, or I guess, you know, promoting, a Taylor Swift night. Can you talk about that and what that entails? Well, I'm not hosting it or anything. So there, there are two women, uh, uh, Katie and, and Courtney, who uh, work under this name, uh, which I'm also going to butcher, uh, La Petite Fete. Um, and they've been kind of organizing, they're not kind of, they've been organizing uh, 
uh, dance night for Taylor, like a Taylor Swift dance night for a while. I think about six months or a year. Um, and, and through various events, we ended up getting together and they were kind of looking for someone to help, help them take it out of Orlando and kind of expand nationally. Uh, and, you know, I have this experience in the music industry. So after talking to them for a bit, it was like, okay, I can, you know, work on booking this. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying before. It's, it's really interesting for me because it's, you know, it's, it's a combination of things, right? It's being able to make other people successful, which I always think is great. Uh, and Katie and Courtney are two people who are very passionate about the kind of music they're interested in. It's just kind of supporting them in, in being successful and doing what they love. Right. So it's, it's a very fulfilling thing, I think, to make other people successful. Um, there's a huge crowd for it. Uh, it's a kind of great setup and, um, there's a kind of, you know, aside from all that, you know, it's just, it's nice to do different things. It's a kind of problem solving thing. You go, you know, uh, where, where should we play in Poughkeepsie? I, I don't know. You know, it becomes like this thing. Um, so it can be fun. And, you know, obviously I'm familiar with pop music, but not really a genre I dabble in a ton. Uh, so exploring how that's different from say working on metal concerts and, and what those deals look like behind the scenes and, you know, what, what we can do to best support what uh, Katie and Courtney are doing and, and, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's just a really interesting project. And, but, but like I said, there's a great motivation to, um, to make other people successful. I think the longer I do this, you know, cause you, you get into the music industry, I think, you know, for a lot of different reasons, depending on the age you are and, and what you're working on. But eventually I think if you do it long enough and you're in the industry long enough, you know, there, it's a, it's like any other industry, there's a competitive aspect to it. And, and, you know, you're, you're working with, and in some cases against other people to, to get this show so that they don't get it or, you know, this kind of stuff. But by the end of the day, at least the older I get, um, you know, the more fulfilling it is to see other people be successful and, and realizing you can be a part of that, especially uh, behind the scenes. Like I, I enjoy being like, no one's putting my face on a flyer being like Taylor Swift dance night. <laughs> this is the reason you should go. Right. So that's not, that's not what the fulfilling thing is. It's the being making other people successful. that I think is, it is, is worth it so yeah um building on that what has been the most surprising thing as far as like how successful it's been and the different ways that it's been successful i mean we've sold out every show which is uh pretty wild uh, and they had a and i have nothing to do with this but they had a and this is a national out. it's a national yeah. thing right it's not just florida yeah yeah we're working on seattle too so i'll make sure that you get in hell yeah. yeah but um uh, I mean, yeah, the whole thing's been surprising. It, we booked a ton of it. It, it, it we, we managed to hit the ground running very quickly. Watching every event sell out is pretty wild. Um, and if you, you know, if you look at their Instagram or their TikTok, it's, you know, because again, people experience concerts in very different ways. But you know, people going to these dance parties are just—you can tell that they're having the time of their lives. They love these things. They're very passionate about the music, but it's just like a huge party. So it's always great to see all these different cities, especially on, on their Instagram kind of people just having a great time kind of lo losing their mind and, and dancing and stuff. So, um, but yeah, selling out every event has been uh, a little shocking. W one hopes or anticipates being successful, but that's like a little absurd <laughs> uh, to some degree. It's not a bad thing though. Um, how did you get in, into, into booking shows and promoting Oh, uh, there's kind of like different levels to that. So, um, so when I was like 15, 16 and, and we started a band and started playing shows, I grew up in the middle of nowhere. So there were no venues, like it, there were no clubs to play or bars or anything like that. So we had to like rent, you know, DIY, like rent the VFW, rent halls, um, the heritage center and the women's club were like the two places that you could rent in the kind of by the town I grew up in. And we would have to like scrape together money and somehow borrow some old PA and like, you know, put on this weird show that, that it, it's always a, like it's always, yeah, it is a horribly irresponsible thing, but yeah. It's huh? always that damn PA that either makes or breaks the show. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, this has been lost in the sands of time or whatever, but like, you know, we somehow, again, I grew up in a kind of Southerny, you know, somewhat rednecky town. So it's like, 
you know, someone's mom knew a guy that had a PA like in his garage or some shit. They let us borrow it. But I, it was like, I couldn't even tell you how, but we somehow always scraped together some like fucking weird PA. And I, yeah, it, we pulled it off every time. It was bizarre. Um, but I kind of learned how to book shows through that process. There's this guy, Matt Alexander, that uh, was a couple years older than all of us that kind of spearheaded that project early on. Or not kind of, I mean, he did. And I was lucky enough to be surrounded by a bunch of people in bands. You know, we were all young, but who were driven to like do our own thing in, in that that town. Uh, so I kind of just learned a lot through them. It wasn't really till later when uh, I was living in Orlando, where another guy, uh, Mike, uh, had a company called Morbid Subculture, who was kind of booking shows in Orlando. So I learned a bit from him. Uh, and then at one point, I moved to Tampa. Uh, and Heather, who owns the Brass Mug, or owned the original one and owns the last couple incarnations still, um, she kind of knew I had moved to town and was like, hey, I, you know, I need some help booking nationals. Do you want to give this a shot? You know, I don't know what you're doing. And so I just, I, I kind of stumbled into it. I never woke up and was like, oh, I, you know, I want to be a promoter. Like, that wasn't a, a really the idea. Um, and we, had, at one point, we had a, a booking agent for our band who had a bunch of other, like we were the smallest band on the roster. Like there was all the other bands. And then there was us down here somewhere below that. And uh, I think he was, uh, he didn't have like a reliable promoter in Tampa when I was living there. And he was like, Oh, you should do it, man. I'll send you some bands and I'll introduce you to this guy. And it just kind of, you know, it just kind of fell into place. It was never like a career aspiration to be a promoter or anything like that. It just, one day I woke up and here we are doing this podcast. I, I don't, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's funny. It's funny to me because it's more or less a hobby for you because your full time job is being a philosophy teacher, which is hilarious, and it speaks to the fact that a you never sleep, b you can never sit still and actually just chill. You always have to be doing something, and the fact that you have a full time job as a philosophy teacher and also have this incredibly profitable, well, you know, decently profitable. Uh, COVID notwithstanding side hobby uh, is, you know, hilarious. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's awesome. And it's always been fascinating to me. Um, just the types of bands that you booked and just the hearing the business side of it. Uh, because I mean, you see the music business from the outside, you know, from, uh, you know, you don't see anything behind the curtain per se. So it's always interesting to get the perspective of, um, the music industry of as, as far as like the people are actually in it and have to deal with it day to day. And I guess related to that, um, can you talk about like, what is the business model for club promoters and booking agents is kind of like the nitty gritty details of that kind of stuff. Obviously not giving away trade secrets, but like, what are the things that you have to do to like put on a show and all the things that you have to deal with to put on a show? So put on a show is like a kind of nebulous phrase. Um, you know, I, if I stand in my living room and read the phone book to my cat, I can technically be considered an actor, right? Like acting. <laughs> so I mean, you can put on a show by like having a band play your living room and make sure at least one person shows up before the cops do, right? It, it, you, don't really, <laughs> you don't need a business model to put on shows. And there are tons of great uh, indie promoters who, who do DIY shows and in, in, in houses and basements and rented halls that don't really have like a business model. Um, so the business model of being a successful promoter, if what you're trying to do is look at it as a business, uh, is, um, for lack of a better phrase, kind of a clusterfuck. I don't know if there's a great business model. Um, there are easier ways to make money uh, than being a, a show promoter, a talent buyer. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the basic economics of it is, uh, is, is essentially gambling, right? So what you're doing uh, is you're guaranteeing acts X amount of money and you have expenses that you have to pay venues and for food and all this kind of stuff. And as you cover that, there's a percentage of it that you get as profit. Um, so you're gambling that you know how much money this band is worth in your market, how many tickets they'll sell. Uh, and you know, the downside to that is that if you're wrong, you still owe them that money uh, regardless of, of whether it shows up or not. Um, so, you know, I, I, I've, I say this to the point of being repetitive, but you know, my, the, the biggest thing for me in, for years, and I've said this over and over again to the point that anyone who knows me, who watches this will already know what's coming. 
Like I always <laughs> describe the, the business as a mix between being a carny and being a gambler because so much of it is, uh, and I say both phrases lovingly. I, I have no problem with them. Um, uh, but, you know, part of it's gambling and those of us who are into it are, are comfortable usually taking risks because that's part of what the industry is about. Uh, and a little bit of it's carny because you're like, how can I convince people to come to this thing? And how can I kind of, you know, push this to people in a way that's interesting? Um, so, but again, I, carny, I think is fine. I don't have a problem with that, but uh, <laughs> a little bit of those things. It's not the most romantic description of the music industry I've ever heard, but uh, I think it's accurate at least uh, to some degree. Well, it's um, funny. You it's funny you say that because um, uh, I forget what documentary it was. I think it was like the Pennywise documentary about uh, uh, GM when he quit the band or whatever. Um, and they're interviewing the dude from the Vandals. And uh, he was talking about what it means to be still playing music as kind of not really a huge band. He's like, I just feel like a birthday clown at this point. I'm like, that's really depressing, <laughs> but also kind of makes a lot of sense. Well, I, yeah, you know, I think there's a sense in which I love, I was just telling someone this yesterday, but I love the freedom of the industry in a sense, because it's not like a lot of different, I mean, there are tons of ways you can be involved in the music industry. Not every job is the same, right? So if you work for Live Nation, your, your job is very different. Uh, you know, you're using someone else's money. You don't really have skin in the game. I mean, you can be fired, but it's not your, you know, money. Um, so, uh, but, you know, the thing I love about the industry, in a sense, uh, is there's so much flexibility. Uh, I can wake up and be like, hey, you know, what do I want to do today? What kind of genre do I want to try and work in? And, and obviously, it's much more complicated than that, and it's not that easy. But there's nothing stopping you from going, oh, I really want to try and book uh, country music now. So how does that work? Uh, I had this, I never ended up doing anything with this, but I spent a while, I think it was at the beginning of COVID, maybe a little before going, I have no idea how they sell uh, like opera. Like how does opera market itself? How does that work? And it was, you know, I'm not really interested in booking opera. It's not my thing. I don't want to shock you, but like, uh, <laughs> but uh, it was interesting to see how they kind of set everything up differently and the way people who promote uh, opera concerts, events, I don't know what it is, but uh, they look at things differently and they look at money differently and they look at, you know, talent differently and, and how that's um, promoted and how it's kind of set up and stuff is just really interesting. So, I, you know, you can do anything. You could, you know, take, be like, oh man, Nick's doing this podcast. Let's put him in a room. Uh, let's charge people to come see him. It would, you know, fail horribly, but, but you could do it and it would, it would be, you know, great um, for someone. You know. <laughs> Would you would you show up though, sir? Would you? I'd be on a guest list, right? So I'm a, sure, but it's not helping, right? Is you know. <laughs> thanks, yeah. thanks for upselling me, buddy. I appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Related yeah. to opera, uh, I would have to guess that opera probably operates under a similar business model as uh, Broadway plays, realistically, because I it because uh, I know I remember my mom. Um, she went to like one San Francisco opera event and then they called her like every month, like on the month, like asking her like what shows she wanted to book. To me, it seems like hassling people that went to one and making sure that they come back seems like a logical way to do it. Well, I think so. My, un so my understanding is very flawed. So, so, so I'm not going to be a great person to explain how this works. Sure. My impression was that you usually opera companies who sell tickets structures because they have seasons right they don't just do events year-round they usually have specifically plotted out seasons uh but they kind of depend on specific donors and boosters who are always going to buy season tickets and then yeah there are people who you know stumble in and go oh maybe we'll go see the opera today i don't know who does that but someone does <laughs> um, but those aren't really the people paying the bills it's the it's the more you know for the lack of a better phrase wealthy patrons who are buying season tickets for thousands of dollars that are really keeping the lights on, so to speak. So, so you're right. marketing to people in the same way you would a, a concert where you're doing it. You're, you're, you know, if I, if I'm booking cannibal corpse, I'm not going, Ooh, let, let me focus on the person willing to pay the most expensive price for a ticket. Cause it's not <laughs> how you would, would kind of book a rock concert. But I think for opera, um, kind of like you've talked to me about before with mobile games where it's like, you're selling to the 1% of people who don't just play it for free, but drop, 
10k a month in like you know extra buy-on so i think opera is maybe kind of similar which you know opera and classical music you know run into this kind of financial problem that i think contemporary music whether it's hip-hop or rock or anything else don't which is you can put on a hardcore show or, or rock show or reggae or hip-hop or anything for almost nothing insofar as you uh can secure a place to do it and, and get the bands to agree to play for you know free or very little money or whatever there's not a real financial problem you have right like i was saying before you can do it at your house and i guess technically you could do classical music or opera that way but you don't really see anyone doing that right so there's a much more of a financialness i don't know if i call it necessity but there seems to be a financial element that really drives every aspect of that in ways that at least when bands are more independent and you know younger and starting out the financial aspect just isn't as relevant you don't see a lot of diy classical music people <laughs> touring right. or playing house shows or whatever so right um, yeah um, I'm curious, uh, obviously we just can't, well, we're still in a smoldering pandemic, uh, thanks to COVID. I live in Florida, man. It's been, what pandemic? No. Florida, man. Um, well, <laughs> related to that, what is the Florida music scene like in 2021 in regard to what shows are really selling well? Yeah, I mean, it's not really any different. You know, people, I think, probably started coming out to concerts here a little sooner than other places. Um but you know i think there are probably some there are less local bands than there were so i think some people who played a lot locally are taking a break or waiting for the pandemic to kind of fully go away before coming back um and i think there's some people that just kind of you know moved on to some other stuff um but, but you know shows are kind of the same i mean turnouts have been really good for most things uh you know some vaccination requirements uh or wearing masks or all this kind of fluctuate between event uh so hopefully people are vaccinated if they're coming out you know obviously don't have any control over that um but yeah it, it really hasn't it, in somewhat in a negative sense it hasn't changed so not really specific to florida but i found that you kind of hope that when most of us had a crumbling year off which wasn't ideal but we can look at it positively by calling it a year off uh, you would hope that the music industry, which again is such a kind of nebulous term, but like you would hope that people took time to reflect on how they were doing the things they were doing and question, you know, how could I do this in a better way? Uh, and I, I have not found that to be the case. We're kind of back to the way it was uh, 18 months ago. No, nothing really changed uh, substantially. So I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but uh, we're kind of just back to, to business as usual. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I bought concert tickets and I got gouged pretty hard. So it definitely feels like it's back to normal. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we refund anything that got canceled because of COVID or anything like that. We re we refunded back in March uh, and, and things. I haven't really had any tours canceled because of COVID, but I have had some cancellations for various reasons. And we always just refund tickets. You know, Live Nation has their own issues with that, but, but at least for, for us, we just refund the tickets because no reason to keep people's money for an event that's not happening. It, it seems bizarre right. to me. In a sense. Um, but people get angry with you either way. So, it, you know, I, I had a tour that canceled this week. It had nothing to do with me. The band canceled for some personal reasons. And I refunded everyone's money immediately. Uh, and I got angry emails about why is my ticket being refunded? Uh, <laughs> I didn't want to refund. I want the concert to happen. I go, yeah, you know, I don't have any control over that, but we thought we'd at least give you your money back. And, they're still quite mad about it. So can't really please everyone, I suppose. Yep. <laughs> Just got to be the punching bag. Um, <clears throat> so I want to talk about uh, your 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 life and career and philosophy because it's vastly different than your music track. Um, so you were coming up in the Florida death metal scene around, this, around the same time that you're also coming up in the academic scene. And I don't know if coming up is the word I would use, but I existed in the Florida death metal scene. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and the things you were talking about earlier about like the bands that were like, you know, uh, part of that scene of, you know, Morbid Angel and Cannibal Corpse. I think it's important to note as well that like, not only are they bands in the scene, but they're, they're also your peers and they're people that like, as you mentioned, hang out at shows and, or actively they have shows. I wouldn't call them my peers. Like they were definitely an inspiration. I've been lucky enough to, to meet some of these guys and, and, you know, hang out or, or, you know, do 
do stuff with, but yeah, no, they're, they're more inspirations than, uh, than peers. Sure. Well, way to cut yourself down. <laughs> well, my, uh, my band put tens of twenties of people into venues, you know, you, you be a little <laughs> realistic and humble about what you've done, I think. Um, but anyways, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, we also put tens of twenties of people in a tiny shoebox venue in Tijuana and we drank, we drank their beer out one night, which was a lot of fun. That was a great if, show. It was, uh, if, there, was if there's a... any, if there's any bucket list show that I've ever been to, it was a time that I went to go see your band in Tijuana and we drank the, we drank the bar out of beer before you guys went on. We had to go elsewhere to get beer. I just remember wild. being uh, somewhat inebriated, and there was an opening band, Skeletor, right? That's what they were called, I think. And the guy's yeah. mom, one of the dudes in the band's mom, was at the show. And we were at a hot dog cart in Tijuana, and I was definitely pretty inebriated. And she was trying to explain to me how she got him out of jail the week before. So I, I don't like that's all I really remember from some of that, that show. It was kind of a wild. We did a bunch of shows in Mexico and they're always pretty wild and uh, it was awesome. We were always treated really well. We we're always stoked to go down there. So it was, but, but it was always, a, you know, I look back on it now and go, wow, it's cool that we're not dead. That was amazingly uh, <laughs> irresponsible. Uh, but, you know, apparently it worked out. So take risks. I, I don't know. I don't know what the lesson is from that. Probably not a lesson, but. The, yeah. the lesson is <clears throat> that if your mom drops you off at the venue in a minivan in Tijuana, that you don't do falsetto King Diamond vocals and say that the false metal. That's usually not a good luck, at least not for me, but I digress. Um, <clears throat> so let's talk about philosophy. Uh, what? So obviously, you know, it's it, it's a genre that you don't easily you don't slip into casually. It's something you have to go super deep on. No pun intended. Um, what are the what are some of the early things that resonated you with? resonated with you about philosophy? I mean, I think a lot like the music industry, I just kind of found myself here, which is, I really wish I had a better story about this. I'm like, no, I was driven. And you know, <laughs> it's just it's one of these things where I kind of stumbled into it as a teenager and was like, wow, I really like this. And then somehow, you know, we were doing band stuff and I, I got really interested in it in college. So I, that's what I pursued. Um, and I, I went to grad school for, you know, I was super interested in still doing philosophy, but for lack of any other plan, it was just like, oh, this is what you do next. So I decided, oh, let's go get a PhD. Um, so, <laughs> so I went and did that for five years and, and got a PhD. It, it, it was not as thought out as you would hope, especially given the topic. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've always just been really uh, attracted to that, I guess, genre of literature, that way of looking at the world. I think the more I read it, the more I became intellectually curious about it. Uh, and I don't know if I would say that it, um, I don't know if I would say I had this, like, you know, I wasn't walking around going, God, what's the meaning of life? I, you know, it's not this uh, kind of vague sense in which I was driven, but I just always found it fascinating and, you know, interacting with a lot of people, other philosophers, I guess, uh, and talking about this kind of literature in conjunction with issues in the history of science and uh, the history of, uh, culture, I guess. I mean, it's always just a fascinating thing. And it, it's, you know, you get to have these conversations that are very, for reasons that aren't particularly clear to me, are very difficult to have uh, on, on a day-by-day -day basis, right? So, you know, you're not standing outside a show going, so um, we're trying to figure out how we merge humanistic and scientific pictures of mankind. So what is that? How does that look like? Or, or how should we think of gender? This is a complicated issue in 2020. Like that's, you can't, you can't have these conversations uh, and you should, but, but I think it's hard to do a lot of the time. So I was really driven by, I guess, being able to have these conversations and especially grad school and going to get a PhD. I was very fortunate to be surrounded, you know, to have a, a five year period of my life where I was immersed in and surrounded by people who are all just as intellectually curious. And I just got to talk about this stuff all the time, which probably drove everyone else that wasn't in grad school fucking crazy because i talk about <laughs> stuff all the time but, but uh but it was great I, you know I, if you no matter what you're doing if you ever get a chance to really be immersed in it for a couple of years you know whether it's uh you know selling makeup or uh creating video games or anything it doesn't matter what it is i, I you know i really can't suggest 
doing that enough because I think it's it's something that as you get caught up in what you're doing and you know you lose the ability to be focused like that or, or to ignore the financial financially disastrous consequences of being immersed in one thing. Uh, so, um, it, but it's great. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I didn't answer your question at all, but that, that was a no. No, I mean you 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 did because you're talking. I mean. You give me a non-answer, but then you also give me a longer answer. But uh, David Lee Roth always said, "You just say what you want to see in print. Not you don't answer the question. You just say what you you want people to to, to see in print." Right? It's like his famous interview strategy. Good old Diamond Dave. Getting some echo again. Echo again. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, so you you mentioned something earlier uh, that was interesting. Um, you were talking about like just being immersed in it. Uh, is there any particular like genre or aspect of philosophy that you went super deep on or that as you went to grad school or earlier that you found really fascinating? Yeah, I got, I got really interested in uh, the history of philosophy or how we think about history or how, you know, there are a lot of ways to kind of talk about this, but how the historical nature of uh, our perception of the world, how that impacts uh, how we think about almost anything and, and what it looks like to give a very close historical reconstruction of anything, whether it's philosophy or science or um, kind of our day-to-day -day lives. And then that combined with these kind of pressing questions about how we look at the relationship between a kind of scientific description of the world and uh, uh, you know, our human experience of the world and how you mesh these things or don't, for the lack of a better term, the kind of inconsistency between what seems to be a scientific uh, description and our actual experiences of things has always been a fascinating question. So that, that's really where I focused, uh, you know, writing a PhD and, and subsequently writing articles and, and books on uh, on stuff, but but definitely in a very uh, myopic fashion. And, and I don't really mean that in a negative sense, but, you know, to, <laughs> to write academic, well, I mean, to write academic philosophy in, in this time period is to, to work on really specific problems in really minute ways. And, you know, I, I always hope that, so like going and reading my book would not be a particularly exhilarating experience uh, for the non-specialist, I think. I've always kind of wanted to write something more general, but um, I don't know. I don't know if that's my skill set. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, I do it, it, it's, I do it or I've done it because I find it fulfilling, which I think is, uh, maybe a great personal lesson, but not a great, not a great thing for other people. Because once I finish writing something, I'm like done. Like I don't want to talk about it. I'm not. <laughs> I don't really want to go back to it. Like oh, it went to the publisher. Like all right, can I never actually think about this again? Because I've been you know looking at it for six months and I don't want to do it anymore. But of course, that's not how academia works, right? So then you spend the next five years talking about the same thing. So it. You know, it gets a little exhausting, I think, in a sense, but yeah, I, I, yeah, that's the way I feel about games is like the second I'm actually done with it, I don't want to look at it again. But then there's again, going back to bands, like if you write Pour Some Sugar on Me and that's your biggest hit and congratulations, you have to talk about what that song means for the rest of your life. Um, wow. Yeah. Be careful <laughs> what kind of music you write. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's true. Anything. I mean, even, you know, my band was such a minor thing. But, you know, for, you know, for 10 years, you're playing songs you wrote when you were 16. So at some point you're like, oh, Christ, like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, it's not, you don't want to do it anymore, but it's just like, so it's hard, hard to imagine. Sometimes you think of bands like, you know, Cannibal Corpse, you go, Jesus, they've been playing Hammer Smash Face for, you know, 30 years or something, or, you know, 20 something years. Like, <laughs> it's got to get old a little play bit. The thing, play the thing from Ace Ventura again. I want to hear that song. Oh. Um, so, which is funny because that's, think about how long some of this stuff is. Even Ace Ventura, people getting into death metal right now have probably never seen that movie. Like, it's such like a dated reference. It's, it's not even true. Yeah. It's very bizarre that that was such a big deal at the time. And it was like, I remember my friends just being like, oh my God, was, cause you know, you didn't see, at least we didn't see in the nineties, like the early two thousands, any representation of, of underground metal in like popular media really. So anytime you saw it, it was like crazy. So to see Cannibal Corpse in Ace Ventura was like this mind blowing thing because it was so front and center. Um, or what was it? See, what was a 
was it L7 was in Serial Mom, I think who it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just stuff like that. Seeing underground bands in popular media was always just like, like holy shit, this is amazing. Um, <laughs> but now everything's so accessible now, right? That it's, you can just Google death metal and find the whole history of the movement or whatnot, you know. Yeah, I remember seeing uh, Jim Carrey on the Arsenio Hall show, like imitating death metal vocals. Um, <laughs> and I think, I, yeah, I'm assuming that he probably had a, a big reason why they were why they were in that movie. But oh well, yeah, um, I, well, I, I I never really. I mean, I heard that he was a you know like death metal fan or a Cannibal Corpse fan, and he wanted them in the movie. But I don't actually know. I don't think I've ever asked anyone in that band how that ended up happening. Um, that's that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, because where else? I mean, you think about the time period. Like, where else did you see death metal bands in popular media? I I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Like, Anthrax was in Married with Children for one episode. Not really <laughs> death metal, but you know, kind kind of close. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Um, going back to philosophy and going back to the the general, more broad, non-specialist philosophy, being the fact that you are a teacher of philosophy and that you teach all, you know, you've, you've taught all levels of philosophy from, you know, entry level stuff to very specific stuff, but I want to hear the hot takes. Who is the most overrated philosopher and who is the most underrated and why? Who's the most overrated? Well, I mean, I hate Plato. I find it extremely boring, which is (laughs) not uh, teaching Plato and reading Plato. I just, it's like, you know, poor, poor hot sand in my eyes. I would rather, uh, read almost anything than Plato. I, something about the dialogue format and something about Plato's writing. I just, you know, I, I teach it because I, I, I feel like I'm somewhat obligated to do so. Like if you're taking an intro to philosophy uh, class, it seems like you should at least read something by Plato in the beginning with Socrates in it. So you can say you did it. Um, I, I just, I don't know. Plato was just never particularly interesting his ideas to me at least are not particularly inspiring. You know, there's some people who wax, you know, and just gush all over how much his writing is amazing, but I just, I don't, it doesn't click. Um, so I don't know. Um, underrated is hard. There's like a ton of underrated people. Um, you know, the answer to that in a sense is that, uh, I don't think it's specific people. So the history of philosophy uh, to the surprise of no one, I think, has been generally co-opted by, like, dead white guys, right? So if you go up until very recently, and this is still kind of the norm, if you go into, like, Barnes & Noble, not that anyone does that anymore, but if you did, if you go to Amazon and type in history of philosophy, chances are you would find, you know, a book that's going to give you a history going from, like, Plato or people just before Plato up to Nietzsche or maybe Sartre right? Uh, or Foucault, maybe. Uh, but it's all like, you know, dead white guys. So, you know, I don't know if I'd say there was any one philosopher who's underrated. Um, but I would say that that a lot of people in marginalized communities who were doing really good philosophy got absolutely fucking ignored. Uh, and that that's particularly frustrating. Um, Susan Langer is one American female philosopher who's uh, uh, phenomenal, but really, I, I've done some work on this woman, Grace De Laguna, who had this like brilliant career uh, and wrote just like this amazing stuff. She did a great book. She published with her husband early on. Wrote all these articles that touched on, you know, like she kind of predicted certain advances in thinking about human psychology and development and evolutionary pictures. And she wrote on such an absurd variety of things and touched on so many different aspects of philosophy and intellectual issues and has just been buried uh, in the passing of time, you know? Uh, so that kind of stuff's frustrating. I, I don't know. I mean, there's just so many people that are underrated that you could, you know, you could do an entire podcast just on that. I think there, there are podcasts on this, right? The history of philosophy without any gaps or whatever the guy tries to like kind of put this through. But yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's kind of the answer is that, you know, there's some sense in which knowing the potted history that's been accepted by a lot of people up until now is important because you can know what this like distorted image is, but it's like, there's so many brilliant thinkers that have been overlooked because that for the longest time was the focus, which is kind of a 
absurd, right? That, that people bought this image of what philosophy is as this like oddly canonized, like, well, yes, the most brilliant ideas were these like 20 people. And it, it, it's a little absurd that it was ever given any place of influence, but you know, thankfully, I mean, a lot of work in philosophy now, I mean, philosophy is such a diverse thing that, you know, practice that people work on all kinds of stuff, but there's a ton of work now to unearth uh, or, or highlight a lot of these people who got buried essentially uh, by that really canonical Western picture. So it's been great. Um, but yeah, Grace de Laguna, if I, I was forced to pick like specific people vis-a-vis uh, -vis my interests, like Grace de Laguna and Susan Langer are probably the two uh, who I think are, are uh, horribly underrated. Just don't read Plato. Go, go do something better at your time. <laughs> Um, and I know that you've, I mean, just like any teacher, you get pretty tired of your courses and it's just kind of, you know, you're, you're used to the, the topics that come up, but I'm curious, um, what are some of the more interesting topics that you bring up in your courses that tend to spark a really intense conversation with students? Um, uh, well, I mean, so I wouldn't say I find these personally compelling but the things that, that that students seem to find interesting in like lower level courses like like more generalized topics uh, whether mm. God exists or whether there are arguments for God's existence is kind of always a thing um, I do a little bit of stuff and I, I've kind of changed my view on this but I used to think that questions about the meaning of life were like a waste of time and I still kind of think that but um, <laughs> but I used to not teach it because I thought well this is a stupid question. Uh, so I, am not going to make people read about it and I don't want to have to talk about it for an hour, you know, or something, but I actually found that, that students respond really well to reading about different answers to what the meaning of life is supposed to be or how we should think about it. And I teach some pessimism or nihilism when I do that, which is always fun because, you know, the, the students find it depressing because it's, <laughs> you know, Peter Zaffe is Norwegian philosopher has all this stuff about how, you know, it's all like, we're all fucked and it's it's everything's horrible and and anything you find that you might think uh is uh, a solution to that problem that really gives life meaning it's really just a distraction from like the horrible suffering that is our existence and so i love it it cheers me up immensely to talk about that one um uh but then um i guess probably the most compelling thing i teach are issues about being vegetarian uh mainly because you know there's some really interesting arguments about whether or not it's morally acceptable to eat meat. And it's not that you change people's mind because that's not really the goal. You, you don't want to, at least I don't think the goal of teaching is to change people's mind. You want them to like critically reflect on their own beliefs uh, and, th and then either, you know, get better justification for those beliefs or find new beliefs or wh whatever they need to do. Uh, I'm not particularly concerned about what their actual beliefs are. Um, but the, the vegetarian argument is really interesting because it forces people usually to face uh, a kind of inconsistency in their own beliefs. And, you know, we all have inconsistent beliefs on a variety of topics normally. Um, but we're not usually forced to face that inconsistency because we rarely run into it or we rationalize away uh, why, you know, our inconsistent beliefs aren't really inconsistent or, or something like that. So the vegetarian arguments with my students are always interesting because they, they usually come to a point where they are going to continue eating meat, uh, where they like eating meat, but they can't actually really find anything wrong with the arguments about uh, why it's immoral for you to eat meat. So they're stuck in this weird spot where they, they, they want to continue living the way that they've been living, uh, but they, they're bothered by the fact that they, they can't really justify <laughs> what, what they're doing. Um, so I think that moment is the best thing you're going to get out of lower level philosophy courses is that, you know, something people haven't thought about or something they've thought about marginally when you're faced with that kind of inconsistency, I think it pushes you optimistically to reexamine, you know, why you're doing what you're doing. Not, not so that you become a vegetarian uh, or anything like that, but just because, you know, it makes you think about why you're actually, you know, behaving the way you're behaving or why you have the beliefs that you have. So right. that's probably the best moment. Or when I get angry emails about their grades, that's always fun. But, uh... <laughs> <clears throat> uh, 
Um, and going back and, and now marrying your two your two passions together, which is philosophy and putting on events at clubs and bars. Um, you started an event at dive bars in Florida called Drink and Think. Um, can you explain how that works and uh, what kind of conversations you were able to get people to have in dive bars? Yeah, I mean, we did everything. It, it was fun. Uh, so I got burned out writing about really specific philosophical problems, right? Because, you know, you spend a lot of time talking to other philosophers, but you can't converse with anyone else because you're so kind of, you know, deeply buried in this really specific literature. So it's, it, you know, it's, it's hard to do anything. Um, so the idea was to start this night that was free. Uh, we didn't get paid to do it or anything. And we, we, you know, we never charged people to get in, but it just to have these like public conversations about philosophy. And the idea was that, you know, you'd get someone who was a faculty member in something. It wasn't always philosophers. We had an English professor, uh, Kirsten Holt, who, who gave a couple talks on different topics. But you're supposed to give a really quick talk because no one wants to sit there and listen to you ramble for fucking 45 minutes. So, you know, the idea was to give a five or 10 minute synopsis of like, here's a problem. Here's some arguments about it. Here are the reasoning behind why people think this, that, or the other. And then, uh, you know, so now we're going to sit down and talk about it. So it actually ended up being, you know, we ran it for a couple of years uh, at Little Indies. This is a bar in Orlando that's attached to Will's Pub, which is a, a venue I do uh, events at. And they were, they were nice enough to let us do this. Um, we ran it for a couple of years. I mean, some of them would be really packed. Uh, some of them you'd end up with like 10 people. Um, but we did it once a month. And, and you know, it just kind of ran its course. I, I got kind of burned out doing it because I – you know, I'm at bars so much or shows so much that at some point you just don't really want to, you know, be out. Um, and, you know, attendance kind of leveled off at, at, you know, 10 or 15 people each time, which is totally fine. But, you know, you get kind of burned out and we, we didn't really put any, it's not that we didn't put any effort into it, but we didn't spend time like promoting it. We just kind of put it up whenever showed up, showed up. It was kind of. Is there, is, is there any particular night that like really seemed to like the crowd was like super into it or at least you just had some really interesting conversations kind of flying back and forth? Um, well, the first night was pretty fucking unreal because uh, I put it up and having no idea how this was going to work out or whatever. And I was the first speaker because it was my idea. And we did a real quick presentation on, on how do you handle fake news and it wasn't a super intense the idea wasn't super politically driven or anything it was just oh there's this new not new phenomena but new way of talking about this and what does this mean and how should we think about it as a society and how should we deal with it and uh it was the first event we did and little indies probably holds you know i don't know for 30 or 40 people it's a smaller craft cocktail yeah. bar and we had like 80 people in that thing. People were sitting on the floor. Everyone was jammed in. Uh, so it was wildly successful in a way that it was not intended to be uh, in any sense. Uh, so that was bizarre. Um, <laughs> quite, quite memorable. Little, little intimidating because, again, it was like, oh, if we get five people to show up, that'd be great. Um, so that was cool. But, yeah, I mean, it's just we had a lot of great conversations with people. Um, by and large, everyone was pretty respectful, which, you know, you kind of worry that, mixing alcohol and philosophical topics was going to be uh, some kind of nightmarish wedding of uh, horrible things, but uh, it was. Yeah. I'm just going to say, talk, talking about fake news in Florida sounds like, I mean, what year did that happen? Did you, did you have a conversation? I think it was 2016. Uh, it was you know, around the election. Pretty, is pretty relevant. Yeah. That's, I um, have to imagine that would be a scary, scary scenario at face value for sure. Yeah. It wasn't anything like that. I mean, people had a pretty good conversation about, because I, you know, this was a while ago, and I'm trying to remember exactly how the conversation went. But, you know, again, it, it was supposed to be a conversation. So a lot of these events, like, so I got up and gave like a five or 10 minute spiel about here's maybe a couple ways we could think about this. But then you kind of just handed the mic around to people who wanted to talk. And it, so there was no, like, you kind of played this game of like herding cats where you, you wanted things to go in a kind of a, a, not really a particular direction, but you wanted to at least be coherent in a sense. Um, and I don't know if you were, we were ever really super successful at that because, we, you know, you didn't want it to be homework. Like you didn't want people to like read ahead of time or like do anything. You just wanted right. to show up and have a kind of spontaneous conversation. And there's obviously pros and cons to that because you can, you can have a really great conversation, but it can also go a little bit off the rails or it might only be as a kind of surface level conversation because, 
you know, you're suddenly talking about somewhat complicated issues uh, off the cuff, so to speak. Um, but but it seemed like people enjoyed the intellectual engagement. I don't know if it, you know, I, there there wasn't really a goal, right? So I don't know if uh, my cat's losing its mind over there. But I, I don't know. I don't know if uh, anyone left that and was like, oh, I should read more about this or something. I, you know, it, it was just something to 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 kind of try and do something publicly with philosophy. And, but uh, yeah. Cool. Well, Pete, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Um, yeah. Is there is there anything you want to plug before we leave? Any social media sites, cool things going on in your life? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, if you're in Florida, there's a ton of concerts you should go to. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't think I have anything to really plug. I mean, you know, indoxabooking.com uh, or indoxabookingfl is the Instagram. But yeah, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of uh, regional specific, right? So yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, I think it's, do I have anything to plug? I don't have anything to plug. I guess, uh, you know. Well, I put you on the spot, but yeah. There you go. Well, I mean, it's, you know, if you don't live in Florida, you're more than welcome to buy tickets to concerts here, but I don't know why you would do that. <laughs> um, but you're welcome to buy my book and not read it. That would also be another interesting use of your money, but, you know, it's good. Roll the dice. Be a gambler. All right, Pete. <laughs> sure, yeah, fun. that's the life lesson. Take risks. Fall off the edge. Have it end horribly. Because it will end horribly for all of us. There you go. There, there's the depressing you're, note. You're, you're a rainbow of sunshine as usual. <laughs> all right. Everybody else, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And we'll catch you next time.